Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 305. And now that spooky season is officially upon us, whether you like it or not, I don't know if I'm ready for it, but it's here. Pumpkin spice lattes will be here soon. The first boo bash has happened. So we want to kick this off with a bang and do maybe one of the creepiest attractions at Walt Disney World the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. But speaking of the spookiest time of year, if you are looking to book a Disney vacation, whether it's Walt Disney World, Disneyland, maybe a cruise, Universal, if you're looking for Halloween Horror Nights, whatever it might be, we have someone who can help you. Our sponsor and friend, Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. You can find her at littlebitofdisney.com, but of course, we'll also put the links in our show notes. She does everything for you as far as planning it out, helping you get the price point that you want. She makes great itineraries, which we have personally used within the parks to help make sure that you get the most out of your trip. She can help you get dining reservations for any of those places like Minnie's Halloween Dine, which we would recommend. We had a blast doing that. And she's just overall easy and fun to work with. And again, if you're interested, be sure to check her out. And that link is in the show notes. And the best part, her services are free. How could I forget that? Yes. It's the best part. It is the best part. Are you ready for spooky season? Oh my gosh, yes. So an actual conversation that we had in our household today was that we are officially counting down for the release of pumpkin-flavored coffees at Starbucks. We are those people now. It's I know, it's shocking. We never thought we'd get to this point, but Brendan loves the pumpkin cream cold brew. I like pumpkin spice lattes anyway that they'll give it to me, and we're just excited. I'm excited for the hope of a little bit cooler weather. You know, I'm not going to get my hopes up too high just yet because... August is not over. September will probably still be relatively brutal, but I can I can see it coming, and I know it's going to be glorious, and I really just like Halloween in the parks. That was a much longer tangent on Halloween than I thought I would get out of you. You are very passionate about this. I am. I love spooky season You didn't at Disney. always. Not until Disney. Okay. I think our first Halloween party, it just did something to me. I believe, don't quote me on this, you need to look it up for yourself, but I believe August 24th, which is a Tuesday, is the first day of pumpkin drinks nationwide at Starbucks. But your local Starbucks might start serving them early. Never hurts to ask. Check the mobile (laughs) app and see if it's available for you to order. But it's confirmed. We have two people living in our house. We know we're getting at least three coffees Because you said you're going to get a pumpkin spice latte hot and iced to celebrate the first day. I might. Plus, you know, I might just need two coffees together the school day. Okay. Let's bring this back. Let's get this train back on track and talk about the Twilight Zone 
Tower of Terror. Let's start with some of the key facts to get those out of the way. This opened at Disney MGM Studios on July 22nd, 1994. That was a little over five years after the opening of MGM Studios in 1989. And we've talked a lot about this, and we're probably not going to rehash it as much in this episode, but the early days of MGM Studios were a big struggle. And honestly, you can say that for pretty much every park that has opened besides the Castle Parks. Mm -hmm. Epcot probably got the strongest start out of anybody because it was something completely brand new, but MGM Studios and Animal Kingdom and Disney California Adventure, and then you even say Disneyland Paris. Euro Disney, yep. Euro Disney. They all struggled out of the gate. So a common formula that they had is they'd introduce it to the market, they'd get feedback over a couple of years. In MGM's example, it's around five years, and then they do a major expansion. And so this expansion included the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, and their market research told them, that people coming to Disney wanted more thrill rides. And that pointed them in this direction. If you want to hear more about the very, very early days of MGM Studios, probably one of my favorite episodes we ever did was the Backlot Tour episode on episode number 275. It is chocked full of like crazy, unbelievable things that you wouldn't even believe about Michael Eisner, but he did them. And that's how we got MGM Studios. And then ultimately, that is how we ended up with the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Because like Brendan said, they were looking for that big kind of e-ticket attraction, something to catch people's eyes. And I would even say Tower of Terror is one of those attractions that catches your eyes even before you get to the park. You know, that's one that you can see from a lot of the roads. It really piques your interest. They have the super cool sign that they put right there in the middle of the road, that one that moves. And it hasn't moved for years. It hasn't moved for a while, but it still is so nostalgic to me. And it looks totally 90s. For people who grew up driving to Disney, well, and even before Magical Express, normally you would come in on World Drive right there. So I would say people who visited before Magical Express, 95% of people, you know, grew up seeing that Tower of Terror sign in the middle of the... Six-lane highway, four-lane highway, whatever it is. I guess it's four lanes at that point. Mm -hmm. And seeing it moving and seeing that this is an icon and this is like a must-do attraction that we have to do. Absolutely. And, you know, that was a big turning point, I would say, for MGM Studios and really hyping people up versus kind of the, the very sad reputation that it was getting at the time. So we are going to focus on the now Hollywood Studios version of it, but just so you're aware, of course, many of you will know that there are different versions of this around the world, some still there, some not still standing. They did open a version in Disney California Adventure Park. They opened one in Tokyo Disney Sea, and then they opened one in Walt Disney Studios, which is the second park in Paris. The one in Walt Disney World has went through a few refurbishments or additions throughout the year. So they added more elevator shafts. They added more drops eventually over time. And then eventually getting it to become that random system that we have now where you cannot predict the drops. Oh, I feel like we will definitely talk about that because that is a huge part of this ride now. 
I think. This attraction is 199 feet tall, making it the second tallest attraction in all of Walt Disney World property. It falls just short of Exhibition Everest, which is a half a foot taller. And you may have heard this fact before. They have to keep everything under 200 feet because if they went higher, they have to put the blinking lights on it for airplanes. And that would be a complete eyesore. And if you think about, you know, kind of what they were trying to do with Tower of Terror, they wanted it to be an icon, but they wanted it to blend in with Epcot just well enough where it is situated behind the Morocco Pavilion. You know, there was a lot that went into the sight lines, honestly. So it would be a shame to have to ruin that with a big old blinking light. It wouldn't fit the theme. It, you know, it just, it does kind of take away. I mean, I guess there are, you know, skyscrapers and big hotels that have to have those things, but it doesn't really scream thirties to me. So let's talk about some of the early development and history of this attraction. And then we'll move on to the storytelling portion of it. Like we talked about, the Imagineers were looking for like a showstopper, an e-ticket, something that would really draw the people in because the shows and the backlot tour of early MGM Studios were just not capturing the guest attention as well as they really wanted it to. But they wanted to do something, and they were always kind of leaning on the scary or horror genre, and they even threw around doing something like Frankenstein, or they even talked about adapting a Stephen King novel to do an attraction based on that. That would have been wild. Yeah, I mean, some of those early ideas, you know, ghost tours, murder mysteries, Frankenstein, that does not scream Disney at all. But what is interesting to me is that some of those ideas, you know, they were being thrown around by Imagineers. But even now, if you are someone like us who enjoys keeping up with what is new or coming or potentially happening, you know, Universal is throwing out a lot of those same kind of ideas for this epic universe, like some sort of monster land that's very spooky and creepy and kind of leans into that. So I do think that's interesting because especially with that Backlot Tour episode, if you haven't listened to it, there is that rich history of Universal and Disney just fighting back and forth with each other. And, you know, it's almost like Disney kind of let that go. And Universal, after all those years, is kind of picking that back up because I do think they've had such a success with their like Halloween Horror Nights. Like there's definitely a market for that and people who really enjoy being scared. That was a point and a connection that I didn't really think about until now that if they had went that Frankenstein theme, that would have just been more crossover that they had with Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. Like you said, those classic monsters, the, you know, all the Frankenstein is a big one that they lean heavily on. They have a whole cafe over it. And then like you talked about, they are planning. That's what the speculation is that they're going to have an entire classic monsters land with Dracula and Frankenstein and all kinds of other people. Yeah, they even have a a show. We've never watched it, but it's like a makeup show where they do horror makeup. Like that is really something that I feel like Universal is leaning into. So it's interesting that it's almost like Tower of Terror is kind of the one sliver of that kind of creepy, scary part that Disney did. Because I can't really think of anything else, at least in the U.S. parks, obviously, you know, I know they kind of play with like the fun, spooky stuff a little bit with some of those other 
like Tokyo rides, right? But I feel like here, that's the only thing that we have in any like American park. Yeah. And I think some people would argue that we need more of it. I mean, that's kind of, I think, the thinking by a lot of people saying that we need a villain's park or at least a villain's land to lean more heavily into that. Because obviously, you know, we can we can see it now, the writing on the wall. Halloween is a major, major business for everybody. And Disney kind of goes on the lighthearted side of it. Universal goes more on the horror side of it. But there's probably a middle ground there that Disney can inch further towards as the years go by. But back to our story, they actually decided on the theme and the setting before they decided on the story. So they decided that they wanted to go with this Art Deco 1930s high-end hotel setting to be placed at the end of Sunset Boulevard. And this inspiration came from the Southern California hotels, such as the Biltmore Hotel and the Mission Inn. But at this point, they had still not been able to link it to the Twilight Zone. So I'm wondering, at this point, they knew they wanted an e-ticket attraction. I guess, do you know, did they already know that they wanted it to be like a drop ride? I think so. And I, you know, it says that there is a time period where they knew it was going to be a hotel before it was Twilight Zone. Surely they'd at least kicked around that idea of Twilight Zone and maybe they hadn't got the licensing deal figured out. And that's why they say that there's a break in time. Mm -hmm. Because you would almost have to think that those conversations and ideas have to be going on simultaneously. I would think so. I mean, but again, it's almost very similar to what we even saw in Disneyland with the Haunted Mansion. You know, the Haunted Mansion sat there for a long time before they kind of settled on their idea. So I do think it's interesting that they kind of knew we want this icon. We just don't know exactly what we're going to do with it. Like, that's just such a backwards way of thinking. That's hard for me to wrap my mind around. So you said icon. Let's remember that. Let's come back to this at the end of the episode. Okay. Is this the icon of Hollywood Studios? Oh, well, you already know my answer. So once they did finally decide to use the TV show of The Twilight Zone, they wanted it to be more of an immersive story rather than just, you know, using some of the signaling or the signage from The Twilight Zone. And and they wanted it to really be immersive and build this full story around it, but they also knew they really, really wanted to do that thrill. So there is a Imagineer quote that said, if my tie doesn't fly up in my face, then it's not good enough. And that just encouraged them to keep pushing the envelope further on how they were going to pull off this feat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that quote in itself kind of takes it from being just like a jumping jellyfish kind of ride to the thrill ride that actually gives you some airtime. Because I think that thought process, that's kind of what resulted in some of this technology that we know today with the advanced drop sequences, just them adding more drops over the years until we got that advanced technology. But it also allowed them to create the technology where you're not just free falling. When you're on Tower of Terror, it's more than just a free fall. They are pulling you down. So you get pulled down at around 39 miles per hour. And they say that's about 15 times faster than just being in a normal elevator. So, I mean, they are really forcing that feeling. And I think that's how they distinguish from this ride system that was kind of already gaining traction. I'd be interested to look at the dates on when they open 
So like in Islands of Adventure, that style of ride of Dr. Doom's Fearfall, it's essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. And like Six Flags, I know they have a Superman ride like that, that is a free fall machine. And so I think that's just the Disney difference is that instead of just building a free fall, they made it into an elevator story and then layered on this story on top of it. So let's go ahead and cover that. Many of you are probably familiar with it, but if you're not, the plot of the story falls on the tragic night of Halloween night, 1939, when lightning struck the hotel. Five people were aboard an elevator as the building was struck, causing the elevator to free fall. The Hollywood Tower Hotel then closed the following day following these events, but it has reopened now, allowing new guests to experience these haunting events. So kind of what I pull from that, and it's something that you mentioned before, is that when you think about the show, The Twilight Zone, it's honestly not something that I'm super familiar with. I know you have a lot of familiarity. I think I've seen every single episode, if I'm being honest. Which is wild. You know, I don't know. It's just so interesting that you just grow up on watching the things that your parents watch. Like, I think about if we have kids someday, like, can you imagine the things that we're going to make them watch? Well, like, it's funny to think about. We even joked about it in the car when we were riding today that Queen came on, Bohemian Rhapsody, and it was a song I knew every single word to it. And you, I mean, you've heard it before, I, right? I've definitely heard it. I mean, it's one of those songs that you know what it is, but I didn't grow up listening to it in the car. So, you know Twilight Zone. And I think it is interesting that. It's one of these rides where it's kind of centers around the same ideas. It's kind of the same creepy vibe. Um, they use the same narration. But the goal was not to recreate one of their popular episodes. They gave us little Easter eggs that everybody loves. And they gave us the nods and kind of everything that you would need to fill that hole that you might want from it. But they are giving you that immersive experience. They're giving you something new. And I think sometimes that gets missed in Disney. I think a lot of times they do retellings very well. You know, we see that with things like Winnie the Pooh, but this in particular, and I think they're doing a lot more of it now when they're trying to give you that good immersive experience. But I think they did a really good job of not only giving you something that relates to the Twilight Zone, but also something that fits perfectly in with Hollywood Studios. Well, yeah. And if you think back to the original theme of MGM, I and mean, that's what it was all about is you are getting a behind the scenes look into the movies, but then this expansion kind of sets us on the path that it's on now of saying you are a character in the movies or in the TV show along the way. But I'd be interested we will have to watch them someday. I don't even know if we have TV land anymore. That's where I used to always watch them and they would have marathons. So I think you want me to watch a twilight zone marathon. Correct. Because what I'm saying is there are so many excellent episodes that you could base an attraction off of. There could be an entire twilight zone theme park just based (laughs) off the attractions. I mean the, uh, the episodes. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to say yes to that because I don't know if that really piques my interest. But, I mean, I do think that just goes to show that they had good source material. 
And that was for good reason, because actually all the Imagineers who were working on this watched all 156 episodes of the show at least twice to make it as accurate as possible and so that they understood the storytelling that the Twilight Zone TV show used that they could try to adapt it to the attraction itself. And ultimately, they were able to. And if you think about the show, the premise of all of them were your imagination unlocking this other dimension. They call it the fifth dimension. And that's what happens in every single episode, and that's what they call the Twilight Zone. And the ride and the story of the ride perfectly do that, that you are in our reality, in our dimension, and then something happens to you and you get into the Twilight Zone, into the fifth dimension. And I think that just shows that they really understood what the Twilight Zone was about and how to adapt that to to something like this. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about it before. I think that brings up a really interesting part of this where we are going to talk about the cue and everything, but that kind of leads into like, what are they asking you to do in order to feel immersed? So like you said, we're still here, you know, we're visiting this abandoned hotel. So that's easy to follow. You're able to see everything that kind of plays into that, but then you're also able to follow, okay, I'm here now I'm unlocking this next dimension and now I'm like part of it. You know, I'm free falling just like these victims, these other guests. I don't know. What would you call those people? Go, they're ghosts guess. now. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what we talk about with other attractions of what is the ask? What are we asked to do as the guest to get into the right mental space to be able to experience this attraction? And I do think that they bridge that gap for us pretty well. They're not asking us to travel back in time. They're mm-hmm. saying this closed in 1939. It is now reopened, and you as guests have access to this to experience this phenomenon. You know, the, so they're not asking you to go back in time. They're not asking you to put yourself into the fifth dimension. They're just saying, just see what happens. Just get on this elevator and see what happens. Maybe the same thing that happened to our guests in 1939, Halloween, maybe the same thing will happen to you. So really, there's not an ask. They're not asking you to transport or to imagine or do anything, which I think, you know, the more and more we talk about these attractions and the stories, I think the easier the ask is, the the more people feel immersed. Well, because the easier it is to do, you know, this allows someone like me who's never watched any of, you know, the TV shows at all, I might not get all the little quirks and I might not appreciate some of the Easter eggs, but I understand exactly what's going on. And I think that plays into why Tower of Terror is probably so popular, right? You don't have to understand every little detail to be able to, like you said, fully immerse yourself or fully enjoy it or even just enjoy the cue itself, right? You can just appreciate those things that are very much, you know, here it is. It's, they're kind of serving it to you on a silver platter. So let's talk about the story and some of our maybe favorite plot points along the way that can help you further immerse in that story that the Imagineers are trying to tell to us. And we've said this for so many different attractions, but I think this one, it might be the most true of all. The story starts before you get into the queue. 
It actually starts whenever you turn to the right off of Hollywood Boulevard, if you're coming from Park Entrance, and turn to the right and go start going down Sunset Boulevard. I would argue that it starts the moment you can see it, even off property. I think being able to see it as you drive in, I think being able to see that, you know, the billboard that we talked about that is so 90s that, you know, I'm sure people everywhere can remember from their childhood. I think as soon as you see that, I think the story starts because they're advertising the hotel. It's it's free advertisement. It's free, like, oh, my gosh, I, what is that? I, I need to know what that is. Well, and I think that's a good point. A lot of times we talk about sight lines and things like that. What can you see from outside the park and what can you see inside the park? And it was actually very intentional that they wanted you to see this from outside the park. That's why it's themed 360 degrees around. There's no... There's no fake mountains. (laughs) Yeah, there's no blank space. It's all painted. It's all themed. There, I mean, think about that terrace that's up there. You can only see that from like a few very distinct areas that are available to guests, but they still did it. They still did all of the work on it. Um, I was going to say rock work, but it's not rock work, but the it's cement like landscaping. Work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did all of that to make this look like it is a real hotel. And funny enough, I think the Skyliner actually lends itself very well to it as well. It gives you just a brand new perspective on it and you really get an appreciation for how big and tall it is when you're viewing it, you know, from a bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying it could even start before you enter into the park. I Okay. I, I would agree with that. I can buy into that one. Okay. So for the sake of this, let's imagine we're already in the park. We just turned down Sunset Boulevard. First thing you're going to notice is that all the lines lead towards the Hollywood Tower Hotel. It is the focal point. It's, you know, it's impossible to not see. The road even turns slightly to the right to make sure that you square up with it directly. They have the lines painted on the road that all lead to it. The sidewalks lead to it. Like, they want you to see it. And they want you to see how big it is. But along that walk up there, there's also some little nods of where the story is starting to unfold in front of you. And one of the best ones is a billboard that you can see where it is advertising the Tower of Terror during its heyday when it was still open. So you can see it's a little bit dilapidated, but it's also not as much. It's, I mean, it's that perfect blend of, is it old? Is it new? Should it look like that? What did it used to be? Like, it's just legible enough. So this is supposedly a billboard from 1930. So if you remember, the hotel opened in 1928. So this would be two years into its existence, probably right in its prime where they're starting to pick up business. It's They're really churning people through at that point. And it reads, Our city's newest landmark, the Hollywood Tower Hotel, fashionable dining and modern accommodations. And then the last line says, Where the stars stay and play. I mean, how perfect is that? Yeah, I mean, I would want to stay there. That sounds awesome. And that, of course, then fits into the story of Hollywood Studios, the story of MGM Studios as well. And I I do think that's part of why I like the story so much of this attraction, because 
it is very much seamless with what Hollywood Studios originally was. You know, I think I love everything that they've added to Hollywood Studios. I love Toy Story Land, love Galaxy's Edge, love Mickey and Minnie's. But I do think this ride in particular, Sunset Boulevard, just as a whole, is Hollywood Studios. I think I would agree with that, especially. Well, yeah, I don't see. Then you start thinking about Galaxy's Edge and Toy Story Land. That's a different direction, you know. It is. It's a different direction, and like you said, Tower of Terror even almost melds the two together with kind of everything that, yeah, kind of everything that they're going for. But I just think it's just so classic, and even the billboard says it is. Let's talk about the queue for a moment just because this, of course, does lend to the story as well. So when you walk through that front gate and you're walking through the gardens, that vegetation is intentionally kind of overgrown. It's overbearing a little bit. You can see signs, but the grass is maybe covering parts of it or it's you know, a little bit rubbed off and you can't read it. But you can see different signage throughout there pointing you to the tennis courts or to- pointing you to the front lawn and all of these different amenities that would have been set up for the guests along the way. And then of course you make your way inside where then you hear, you're starting to hear the 1930s jazz music. You can hear it outside, but you hear it louder inside. And then you see the cobwebs are taking over. It's kind of hasn't been touched since that Halloween night in 1939. And something that's really cool in particular about that furniture and just the inside of the lobby area, that like that furniture is true, like antique furniture that they went and purchased from different Los Angeles area auctions, like, you know, like estate sales and different things like that. So they are true to the time. And I do think it's cool that they came from the Los Angeles area where this is supposed to be set, you know, it's not something that was remade or fashioned to look like it. Like this is authentic stuff. Can you just imagine if like you went and said, that's my grandpa's favorite chair, you know, (laughs) Disney bought it. It reminds me. But like, would you even know that it was Disney who bought it from you? Probably not. Or else you jack up the price. (laughs) Yeah, it just reminds me, and I don't know, this is very niche, so I don't know if anybody will find this funny, but my grandma used to tell us all the time, because we grew up where Cracker Barrel is headquartered, and Cracker Barrel would do that. They would go to estate sales and buy all this old stuff, and particularly a lot of family portraits. Like black and white. Black and white to put on the walls of Cracker Barrels as they open new ones, and my grandma would always say, don't you dare put any of our family pictures out in an estate sale or anywhere because I don't want Cracker Barrel to get them be up on a wall somewhere in a restaurant. Yeah, I don't I don't want to be up on a wall in Cracker Barrel. Yeah. So that just reminds me of the same thing. It is I mean it is kind of the same thing. So the next part of this I think is maybe my favorite portion. We see this with other attractions as well, like Jungle Cruise and Haunted, Haunted, Haunted Mansion. Mansion, where there is a cast member acting role that goes into this. So as they sort you and they're getting ready to get you into the pre-show, they're making the announcement that, oh, your room is not ready yet, so please come this way while we get it prepared for you. And I just think the way that they deliver that, the way that it's going to be a different cast member every time that's telling you that, just adds that immersion factor 
that it's not a recording. It's not, you know, anything like that. It's someone right in front of you telling you that that is moving you to the next chapter of the story. And I do think, you know, depending on the cast member that you get, some of these cast members absolutely love their roles. You know, you can see it in Haunted Mansion too, especially with the Jungle Cruise skippers. But like they get into their part, like they enjoy the creepy aspect of it. They like being a little bit intimidating because, you know, it kind of helps to give that vibe. So it's more than even just crowd control. You know, it's not just a person there putting you into the next room to watch a pre-show, but I do think it adds to, like Brendan said, the whole experience. The next plot point that I think after you see the the pre-show video, which we could have probably an entire episode just on that. It's fantastic, obviously. But the next portion is, is that they are basically telling you that to get to your room, you can't go via the normal elevators because they're down for maintenance. So you need to go to the boiler room where then you can board our maintenance elevators to get to where you need to go. And I think that's a point that I missed for a long time of why we ended up in the boiler room itself. Well, I do think, you know, the setting in itself, you are in a smaller room. So the library is a smaller room. Uh, The TV is kind of small. I feel like you always have people talking in there. Like, unfortunately, that's just part of going to Disney is that some people don't really care for the pre-show. Like, they're just there for the ride. So I do think that's an easy thing to miss. I think a lot of people just think, oh, we're going to the boiler room because it's creepy. Or, oh, we just ended up here because it kind of fits the theme. But a lot of times it is easy to miss that you are getting on the service elevator. Like, that's that's why it looks the way that it does. You're not getting on, you know, a normal elevator that you would use to get to your hotel room. So here's maybe where I have a question that I really don't understand the story enough to say a definitive answer. Is it like, was it premeditated that we get on the service elevator because that's where you reach the fifth dimension or is it just, you know, is it just, you know, I'm saying air quotes, is it chance that the actual elevators are down? Um, I, I almost feel like it's like foreshadowing in a way. It's like, oh, well, these elevators broke when like these original people were here at the hotel. We just never fixed them. Oh, here, just go into this elevator and then surprise, like that one breaks too kind of thing. Okay. I mean, I almost feel like it's just kind of an interesting parallel to what happened in the original story. I guess I don't know necessarily about like the deeper meaning well, I don't mean a deeper meaning. I'm just, yeah. Okay. Kind of a deeper meaning. Yeah. I just always get hung up on that part. So the next part that I want to talk about that was something that I missed for a long time, but it does enhance the story, I think, so much, is the fifth dimension scene. So you the doors do open a couple times for you. The first time is when you see the ghost waving you in and they're trying to invite you in with them. One little small little Easter egg is that the little girl in that scene is actually holding a Mickey plush doll. So that does confirm that like Disney was a thing in this reality. Mm -hmm. You know, that they were aware of Mickey 
1939, and the little girl was a fan of Mickey and had well, a plush who doll. isn't? I know. I just think it's fun that they were able to include that. But the next scene, when you hear, when you get into where the glass breaks, mm-hmm. that is the official time that you enter into the fifth dimension. And so it's sort of, to me, parallels the Haunted Mansion, where until Madame Leota does the seance, you don't see a ghost appear in front of you. And it's sort of the same thing. Nothing too crazy happens to you in Tower of Terror until you actually enter into the Twilight Zone. Which I've never thought of that. I mean, I think that's why it's so crucial that in this ride in particular that you do have that forward movement, you know, that it's not just up and down because I do think that allows you to recognize kind of that, that differentiation is I'm not just in a service elevator anymore. I'm being pulled into another place. I'm being pulled into this fifth dimension. And then once you kind of go through that, you know, I don't know if I would call it psychedelic, but once you go through that, like interesting kind of quirky. I would call it like a phenomenon. Okay. Once you go through the, f- the phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you're singing the phenomena song from the I Muppet. felt like I was. Once you go through that experience, that's when, you know, your imagination, I don't want to say is set free. <laughs> you're just bringing in the Muppets, Figment, everybody on this ride. I'm on a roll. Um, but that's that's when kind of the action starts. That's when you get to experience what being in that twilight zone is like. And to kind of end that chapter is after the drop sequence happens, which, you know, we don't have to talk too much about the story there. It's It's crazy. That's the thrill. That's what you're there for. But the Rod Serling commentary, which it's not actually him, spoiler alert, It's someone acting as Rod Serling. But he does say a warm welcome back to those of you who made it and a friendly word of warning is something you won't find in any guidebook. The next time you check into a deserted hotel on the dark side of Hollywood, make sure you know just what kind of vacancy you're filling or you may find yourself a permanent resident of the Twilight Zone. So he is confirming that now we are back in our dimension. We're back in our reality. We have left the Twilight Zone at this time, which I think is a nice little close to it where they don't leave you hanging, for lack of a better term. I mean, it all goes back to this story was just so well thought out that you don't have to leave, you know, thinking that you're still somewhere that you weren't or, you know, you just got to have this experience. Like you said, you are brought back to exactly where you started. You're brought back to the same hotel, you're still in Hollywood studios, you still get to, you know, go on about your day, but you just know that you just went to the fifth dimension, which is pretty cool. And then I do think from here, the story isn't necessarily over because I do think they do a good job still of bringing in the theming all the way through the end, even to the good old Disney gift store. But I like how when you get your pictures, It's over at the Lost and Found desk. I think that's really fun. I like that you have to walk through the lobby, um, and that's where you you get to see 
kind of what that hotel, again, would have maybe looked like in its prime. You get to walk by the restaurant, which, you know, the sunset room where you can see the menu from the last night that the hotel was in operation um, on Halloween. And then, of course, you end up in the gift store, which probably would have been like an actual store in in the hotel. Yeah, I've never really thought about what that gift store is actually themed too, but it's probably some sort of commissary type thing. I do also like even going out into the courtyard area that the Joffrey's there is kind of slightly themed to this area too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just think overall it just, it continues. And I think the cast members do such a great job, even when, you know, they greet you when those elevator doors open and you're done with the ride itself, you know, they're still kind of like welcome, you know, they have their own little sayings that they do that still kind of continues the story. They're not just like, bye. I mean, sometimes they are. <laughs> sometimes, but normally they're into it. And it's a nice, a nice little bow to what we might rank as one of the best rides. Is it one of the best rides or is it the best ride? It's it's quite the debate that we could get ourselves into. I mean, I think the queue has a lot of really redeeming parts. And I think there's a lot to consider when you look at the queue because, you know, the lobby part is small. I do wish that there was more of an opportunity for you to spend more time in the hotel. I think if there was anything If I were just being super nitpicky and there was something that I could change about the ride, I do think that's what I would change because I think the lobby is incredible. I would have loved to, you know, I would have loved to see some sort of wraparound or way that you could spend more time in the lobby or just more a restaurant or just like more time in, you know, this old decrepit hotel, even just like in the garden, I think. There is a lot of detail as far as the plants and the signs. I like the little terrace with the old fountains and things like that. But even there, like sometimes I just wish there was more because I do think it's so interesting. More is more is more. (laughs) So I think that wraps up most of the story. Now, the question that I posed earlier, is this the icon of Hollywood Studios? Yes. More than Chinese theater and more than the gate leading into the animation courtyard. Yes. Do you think going forward, could you see them trying to make like the Millennium Falcon the icon of the park? Oh, absolutely. I think because that's the shiny new toy, you know, that's kind of always how they do it. I think the Chinese theater is a great kind of icon. I just don't think it's necessarily grand enough. And, you know, that's probably kind of unfortunate to say because I do, you know, it has the placement. It has a great part to play in the parks. You know, when we talked about Mickey and Minnie's, I do think it fits well into Hollywood Studios. I just don't think it's eye-catching enough. I don't think it's grand I don't think people stop and... the lights from Mickey and Minnie's help it, don't you think? 
But again, is it helping the Chinese theater or is it just helping like the attraction? I mean, make, you could argue that it's all one and the same, but I just feel like people don't stop and gawk at it. Okay, you know, they might. Here's $100 question. Do you wish the Sorcerer hat was back? Oh, man, of course I do. My nostalgicness. You yeah. Know what the best part of the Sorcerer hat was? The little gift store? Yeah, that it was a shop, too. Yeah, I mean, how dual purpose. Hello. I mean, I know a lot of people thought it was a terrible eyesore and absolutely hated it. But for two people who grew up in the 90s, it was a staple. But just like the Tower of Terror. Maybe that's why I'm biased. Maybe that's why I think this is so great. But I, I just feel like it makes people turn their heads. And I feel like that's what an icon is. It's easily recognizable. You know, if you were to show... People, a bunch of different pictures and say, okay, which park is this in? I feel like some people could really struggle to say where the Chinese theater is. But I feel like if you show them a picture of Tower of Terror and say, where is this? They're going to know. Automatically. California Adventure. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I mean, do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. I do think this, coming back to sight lines is we actually posted a TikTok about this recently and had a lot of discussion about Disney sightlines and people were complaining about Mission Breakout being visible from (laughs) everywhere in DCA. But you have to remember that when it was built as Tower of Terror, they were probably going for the same idea that they wanted you to see it from everywhere. That's what sold tickets at the time. So it's interesting that now once they go through a re-theming, you, you kind of wish you could hide a, l- a little bit more. Even though I think Mission Breakout looks really cool, it is a little weird to see it in from Grizzly Peak or something, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, even from outside the park, I feel like it's one of those that you can see. Oh, we saw it on our walk to the park every day. We did. It was right next to us. Yep, right there. We could have thrown a rock. We would have hit it. Any other thoughts on Tower of Terror? I mean, just... I guess since we kind of walked ourselves into this part of the conversation, we do love Mission Breakout. Mission Breakout's maybe a top five ride all time for me, but I would never want them to take Tower of Terror away from Hollywood Studios. I think we live in a perfect world right now where both rides exist. We don't have a duplicate of it in the U.S., and that's the way it needs to stay. I I couldn't agree more. I think it works exactly the way that it is because I would almost argue that like I pointed out, this this version that we have in Hollywood Studios is the superior version because of the actual moving forward where you can have that transition from now we are entering into the Twilight Zone. It's hard for me to even imagine how they would have done that in California Adventure. Because you never get the fifth dimension scene. Because Yeah, because you don't get that. So it's basically... You know, it was a Band-Aid for California Adventure, and I do think that it helped them when they needed it, just like it helped Hollywood Studios when we needed it. But I do think that it was a severe lacking of the story, and I do like that they were able to turn it over with, you know, source material that we love. We're very partial to the Guardians of the Galaxy and to Rocket, but I also think that it just works better not having to move forward you just 
the up and down, that's all you need. Correct. And they're able to advance the story as much as they need to in the pre-show there. Exactly. Okay. Any other thoughts? It's just, it's an elite ride. It's it's an elite all of its own. And it, I'm glad we have it. Couldn't say it better myself. So if all of this talk has you wanting to ride the Hollywood Tower Hotel, Tower of Terror, reach out to our friend Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations, the sponsor of this episode. She will make sure that she gets you set up to find something in your budget and to find the accommodations that are going to work for you and your family. You can find her at littlebitofdisney.com or click that link down in our show notes and connect over there with her. Never hurts to get a quote. Just see what it'll cost. Maybe it'll be less expensive than you imagined. Maybe. That does happen to us sometimes. We've booked with her several times now. Sometimes we are pleasantly surprised. Yep. So, again, a little bit of Disney.com or click the link in the show notes down below. We will have a new vlog debuting on our YouTube channel. This week you can find that link down in the show notes as well. This is going to be our Disneyland day. We'll be debuting next. So we'd love to have you check that out. At the very least, it costs you nothing to subscribe to our YouTube, and it would mean the world to us. Make us very happy. We are almost to 300 subscribers, so we get to You could be lucky 300. You could be. So we would really, really appreciate that. And as always, if you feel so moved, we would love an iTunes review. It is absolutely the best way to help the podcast grow. It lets Apple know that they should push this and show it to more people so we can get more people listening to the episodes And we really, really appreciate it. So hope you all have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday and hope you can join us then. And we will talk with you real soon. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.